And as you're seated, please open the Bible, the Word of God, to Genesis chapter 28. And we're going to continue our study through Genesis. And um, sometimes we cover more than one chapter, sometimes we cover less. Uh, Lord willing, we'll cover this chapter. 20, it's only 22 verses, right? So Genesis 28, beginning in verse 1, we read that then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paran Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham." Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached up to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven." So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we come to your word to hear from you this morning, to learn from you, because God, you've given us your word. You've preserved it. Lord, it's here now for us in our own language, God. What a blessing. Lord, help us not to take that for granted, but help us to learn, to study, to grow, to love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our account this morning is all about Jacob encountering God. 
This is Jacob encountering God. The sinful, the undeserving, the unworthy Jacob, the deceitful cheater Jacob, encountering God. Well, how, how does that happen? Because God, in His grace, in His mercy, comes to Jacob and reveals to him who He is. And, and we see Jacob responding appropriately. This is, this is a great story. And, and it's encouraging to us because, as we said last week, Jacob, who is sinful and unworthy and undeserving, well, that matches us. <laughs> We're sinful and unworthy and undeserving, and yet God comes to us and reveals Himself to us. And, and our sins may not look the same as Jacob's sins. It may look a little differently, but we have the same sinful heart problem that Jacob had until he encountered God. And so, we all need to encounter God for forgiveness, for His mercy, for His grace, before we have to encounter Him at the end in His justice. Well, how do we do that? How can we encounter God, you know, even, even not just in salvation, but just in life and as we come together in a worship service, that's what we desire, to, to encounter God. How can we encounter God in His grace now rather than His justice later? Well, these verses, this chapter is instructive to us. They teach us about how to encounter God. But how? Are these verses what we call, I've had this conversation a couple of times in the last few weeks, are these verses prescriptive or are they descriptive? What we mean by that is, is prescriptive, is they, they prescribe exactly to us, step by step, what we need to do. Or are they descriptive, there, there are eternal principles taught within the passage itself, so that we don't follow the same steps, but we, we learn the principles. An example of a prescriptive verse is Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead you will be saved. And there's more to it than that, we understand, but there's not less to it than that. If we don't believe Jesus is Lord, if we don't believe that God raised Him from the dead, well, then we have a, a really good reason to question whether we are saved. That's what the verse says, right? And it's prescriptive. Now, it's, it's not telling us that we have to understand every little detail about how it happened and how God did it, because we're never going to understand everything. But we've got to take those beliefs and, and believe them, assent to them, and then live them out and act them out and, and believe in faith. So, prescriptive is what Paul writes in Romans 10.9. It was prescriptive for the people in Rome in um, the first century. And they're prescriptive for us here in Prescott Valley in the 21st century. <laughs> Confess, believe. But descriptive is this chapter in Genesis. This is exactly what happened, but this is not necessarily what we need to do to encounter God. We don't need to try to uh, cheat our brother, run away from home from his vengeance, try to fetch a wife from another land, lay down in the middle of nowhere and expect for God to show us a ladder and talk to us, Right? That's not, what we're, that's not what we're understanding this to be. Or, or go to this place, try to find this place, Bethel. We need to try to find this one place, and that's where God will encounter. That's how we can encounter God. That's the wrong way to understand this. And that may sound a little bit funny to us, but there were people that did that. There were people who tried to make it prescriptive that, well, to encounter God, you have to go to Bethel. You've got to go to that place. It's a mystical place where you can find God. 
And for a time, the Ark of the Covenant would be there. God did allow himself to be inquired of um, for a time there. But when Israel later on split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, King Jeroboam in the north actually set up a different religion. It was similar to the southern religion in Judah. And he set up two temples. He said, you know, let's make this the the church of convenience. If you're farther north, you can go to the one in the north. If you're farther south, go to the one in the south. The one in the south was in Bethel. And he said, come here and, and worship the golden calf that makes up who our God is. He set up a rival religion, different priesthood and everything. And Amos and Hosea prophesy against Bethel and and the great idolatry there, as did other prophets, but they had it in their mind. I've got to encounter God, and to do that, I've got to go to Bethel. It was a cheap substitute for the pure, the true worship of the living God. So later on, actually, King Josiah in the southern kingdom led this mission of destroying all of the idolatry places, the, the high places and the places in the land where they were uh, worshiping false gods. Second Kings 23 says, moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place, Josiah pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He burned the Asherah, and as Josiah turned, he actually saw tombs there on the mountain, and he sent and he took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on that altar, defiling it, according to the word of the Lord that the man of God had promised, who predicted these things. So he defiled that so that he could make sure nobody would ever make that mistake again. Now, why did we look at all that? Well, because people actually took Bethel as prescriptive. If I want to meet God, I got to go to one single place. And this is not a prescriptive chapter that says, um, this is, these are the exact steps that you must take. This is descriptive. And so, we, we're going to study together and avoid the danger of misinterpreting. We're going to, to do our best to interpret correctly to see what the principles are for how we can encounter God, come to a relationship with Him rather than being in fear of Him for all of our life and then for all of eternity. So, there are four parts to Jacob's encounter with God, that teach us how we can encounter God. And we're going to look at the four, the four parts in the, in the chapter, and we're going to save the lesson for the end of each part before we move on to the next part. So, in the first one, verses 1 through 5, we're going to see Isaac sends Jacob away with a blessing. In this first part, Isaac is going to send Jacob away, and there's a blessing We saw last week that Isaac tried really hard to get this blessing to Esau, he, he had resisted God's declared, revealed will, but he'd repented. He changed course, and he's now fully on board with God's plan. He's a believer in God, Isaac is. And he's going to be referred to, along with his father Abraham, as believers in the true God for the rest of Scripture, even in our passage that we read, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. But I don't think we've seen Jacob come around just yet until we get farther along in our passage. To this point in his life, Jacob has been working and moving for Jacob, right? Not for the Lord. The only thing that Jacob has said about the Lord was, was in a lie that he told his dad. Oh, you, you know, your God gave me success. But as Isaac sends Jacob away, he does so in the name of his God and for the purpose of directing Jacob to a wife who will not draw him away into worshiping idols, but who will help him and, and pers- help him to pursue the true and living God. So, he gives instructions, and then in verse, the instructions of verse 2, but then Isaac requests the blessing on Jacob in the name of Yahweh, 
God Almighty. That's how he begins, God Almighty. And that's something that never changes. God is, that's that, that name of God, El Shaddai. That's his name here, God Almighty. Isaac's father Abraham had learned who this God is as El Shaddai in chapter 17. And his, it's his eternal power, it's his strength, it's his, it's his same God who never changes, who, who's always all-powerful. That's this El Shaddai. And Jacob doesn't know him yet. Jacob doesn't know him. But Isaac says, may God Almighty, he's teaching him about this God. May he bless you. God hasn't changed, neither has his promises. As Isaac relates both of them to Jacob, he says, God Almighty bless you, make you fruitful, and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. And so he's echoing the blessing promises that God had given to Abraham, that God had given to Isaac. And he's saying, look, this is all going to go to you. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you, to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. The whole blessing he gave him is being transferred to you. And, and he had tried to give it all to Esau. God had said, no, it's going to Jacob. So Jacob left, we see. He goes to his mother's family, but as he leaves, we need to know, we need to recognize there is nobody with him. There's nobody with him. Do you remember earlier that Isaac's, uh, Isaac had waited while Abraham's servant had gone to get a wife for him, and he had gone with a whole caravan of camels and a whole bunch of servants. He had brought all kinds of stuff. Jacob here is completely alone and isolated, and he sets out on his own. But as we consider this short first part, Isaac is teaching Jacob all about God, and it's part of the preparation for Jacob meeting, encountering God. And so the lesson here is that we need to listen to the witness of believers. Listen to the witness of those who believe. Now, of course, we could say that we need to be those witnesses. We need to be those believers who are witnessing for Christ as well. But the, the point, the, the, the focus of this passage is really on Jacob. And so the instruction that we're taking is, is listen to the believers around us. Listen to the people around us who believe and who live for the Lord. As we seek to encounter God, we, we can listen to their witness. The, the prescribed means brothers and sisters, the, the, the command that is step by step for us, that's prescribed for us, is that we need to be making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and, and teaching them everything I've commanded you, and I'll be with you forever. I'll be with you to the end of the age. That's prescribed for us. So disciples, we who claim to follow Jesus are, are those who make disciples, who will continue to make disciples. That, that's what the prescribed a lesson for us is to, to be a, a witness, to be the ones who give testimony of who Jesus is. But not just for salvation, also for discipleship, for growth in the faith. You remember in Hebrews chapter 12, after chapter 11, the hall of faith that we've talked about, that we've referred to many times in our Genesis study. In chapter 12, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all of these people in the hall of faith, they're a cloud of witnesses for us. Because we have that, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so easily, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So we keep our eye on Jesus, as verse 2 says, but all those who come before us and all those who are around us right now in, this, in the seats sitting around us and in this very room who believe in Jesus provide us encouragement. They provide us instruction. They help us to lay aside every weight and sin that clings so that we can run with endurance the race 
that he set before us. So read biographies of Christians. But learn from the ones who have passed. Learn from those around us. It's one of the big reasons for koinonia groups. We can get together and we can talk about our week and how I've fallen down, but how God's been faithful and, and how I messed up, but God never does. And, and we can learn and, and grow together. We can be witnesses for Christ, brothers, especially tomorrow. Tomorrow's Halloween, right? And so much of the world is, is going to be interested in, in, the, in the dark things. And, and really, you know, this isn't in my notes, but the one time of year that people come out of their doors in my neighborhood is Halloween night. It's amazing. Normally you see a car and a garage door opens, the car goes in, the garage door closes, and that's it. That's the only way you even know there's life in the neighborhood. But the streets are packed. We'll, that's what we're going to be doing tomorrow night witnessing for Christ in our neighborhood. And, and you know, all of the one another's in Scripture, we, we talk about it often, but the, the one another's, we even have bookmarks that we've passed out before. This, it te- they testify to the fact that, yes, we are responsible for one another. Yes, we are our brother's keeper <laughs> and our sister's keeper. So be that witness and, and learn to listen to the witness of true believers who will point you to God so that we can encounter God together. Well, that's the first part. Verses 6 through 9, we come to number 2, the second part here, where Esau tries to gain acceptance through behavior change. Esau is going to try to gain acceptance through some behavior change. Um, Isaac gave us a good example. Esau now is going to give us a bad example. Esau noticed that from his perspective, Jacob who was not his father's favorite, you know, Esau was, was daddy's favorite. <laughs> now Jacob somehow is on, is on daddy's good side. And he's just told him, don't take a wife from here, go away and get the wife. Don't get a, a wife from the women near them. Well, Esau looks at his two wives and, well, they're from the women near them. He, Esau says, well, Judith and Basimath are, are from around here. So he says, well, verse 8, he figures out not only do my wives irritate mom, which I don't care that much because never, I've never been her favorite, but they don't please Isaac. They don't please his father. So he says, well, I, I need to do something about that. But what he doesn't do, as we saw last week, he does not repent. He doesn't really repent, change course to get in line with God's will. We don't see any time where Esau encounters God and repents and believes. We haven't seen that to Jacob yet either, but But Esau is about to do what comes naturally to all of us, to every single one of us, every human being, when we see the effects of sin, but we don't understand sin for what it really is. See, when we see sin for what it is, it's it's lawlessness against the lawgiver. It's rebellion against God. It's a rejection of God as God. That's what sin is. Even when we try to downplay it, we see see, um, sin really is a rejection of God as God. I want to be in charge. And all we can do at that point is to fall on our knees and cry out to God for mercy and for grace, and He gives it. He gives it freely to us when we cry out to Him, when we humble ourselves. But that's not what comes naturally to us. That requires us to see ourselves as God sees us, sinful, deserving of His wrath, not deserving of His mercy, His grace, nothing to overcome our sinfulness. We're in desperate need of Him to forgive us. And again, He does. He does. But that's not what comes naturally to us. What comes naturally is, well, I'm going to convince myself that I'll do better next time. Or I'll just do better right now. I can do better now and I, and I can make up for it. I can make up for what I've done in the past by doing right now. So Esau says... I'll make it all right. 
I'll, I'll get on good terms with dad. Maybe I'll even get the blessing because Jacob took off. He's not even here anymore. Right? So if I get another wife, if I get a, a wife not from around here, then I'll be on, God's, on, on Isaac's good terms. And so he marries Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael. But what he's trying to do is to earn something that he can't earn. What can only come from God to us by faith can never come to us from God by works. It's a fake kind of repentance here, and it's so dangerous. And the lesson that we're learning in this passage, this part of the passage, is that we need to reject works as the means of removing sin. Reject works in this lesson. Now, many of us know intellectually Galatians 2.16. Paul says in Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, how many will be justified? None. No one. No one can be. And it's so central to the gospel. It's so central in the Old Testament and the New Testament that we just can't do it. Our works will never do it. And intellectually, we've got that. We know that, right? We, we talk about it. It was central way back in 1517 for the Reformation because tomorrow is also Reformation Day, not just Halloween Day. <laughs> Amen. Okay, so we understand that, but practically, we still live so often like we think we can, we can ju- be justified by the works of the law. And we know that this is true because, for one thing, the Bible talks about it over and over and over again. And sometimes I scratch my head like, come on, I mean, we understand it. Why do we have to keep going over it over and over again in the New Testament? Well, it's because we still struggle with it. You say, how? What does it look like to struggle with this? The heart of this problem begins when we don't take sin seriously. We don't take it seriously. I'm not, I'm not talking about the sin out there, you know, all of the sins that are so obvious and so manifest all the time out there. I'm talking about the sin that's in our own heart, in our own minds, in our thoughts, the, the, the sin inside of us, because we make excuses for sin. When we excuse our sin, when we minimize it, when we blame other people, we're shrinking sin to less than it is in our mind and heart so that it can become something that isn't all that bad. It's just not that bad. When we shrink sin, when, when we make excuses for it, or, or when we, you know, well, <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. You know, I had good intentions. Or, or you know, God knows my heart. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it's okay. When it makes the removal of sin accessible when we downplay it like that, when we excuse it, when we blame other people. It makes it something that we can accomplish for ourselves, removing it. If I can make up for my own sin because my sin isn't that bad, well, then I don't, need, I don't need forgiveness from God. I don't need Jesus to die for my sins because I can just make up for them. I, don't need, I, don't, I wouldn't deserve God's wrath anyway because of my sin, I, and I don't need your forgiveness either because it just wasn't that bad. See, we can, we can start to hear some of the things that we, that we think, that we feel, that we believe. I just don't need God's mercy and grace. You can see... You can see this at work most obviously if you never ask anybody forgiveness for, for your sin. When you mess up and you just say, well, that happened, we can just let it lay in the past. Never, never ask forgiveness. 
or when somebody says, you did something wrong. Well, you, <laughs> well, I was having a bad day. Well, something bad just happened to me. It excuses my sin. We see how we, easily we can excuse our sin. We can downplay it. What I said or did wasn't that bad. Just get over it. You know I didn't mean to. We're relying on the acceptance of sin, the lightness of sin, and the belief that my intentions or my character is able to overcome that sin. See, so I've done something wrong, but you should just get over it because, you know, I didn't mean to. That's, that's making my works remove the sin. Instead of saying, no, I sinned, confess it and repent of it, turn away from it. My works or my person can overcome sin. You see it at work. When you don't confess your sins to God, you just say, well, Jesus forgave it all, and he did. He did forgive you at the cross. He did when you asked his, his forgiveness, when you turned away from your sin and you believed in him by grace through faith. Yes, praise God, he's forgiven you. And, and your relationship with God can never be broken, but your fellowship can because of sin. And so when we just say, well, God, you should just get over it <laughs> because Jesus died to forgive me, we're, we're downplaying sin. We're not taking it seriously. And, and, and so that's how, we can, that's how we can try to use works to remove sin. When, when we downplay sin, and we just say it's just not that important. I don't have to ask forgiveness. I don't have to ask repentance. Or I don't have to be repentant. And if you still are sitting there and you're thinking, well, <laughs> that doesn't happen to me. <laughs> I'm sitting here high and mighty and, and, and I'm just singing a song here because this applies to all of those people. Preach it to them. <laughs> if you still don't think about that, that it applies to you or to me, then think about this question. How often do you become overwhelmed thinking about the grace of God in Jesus Christ as he died and suffered on the cross for you because of your sins? When somebody starts singing Amazing Grace, do you roll your eyes? Oh, here's that song again. <laughs> when we sing the songs of, of Jesus on the cross and suffering and dying, what is, are you bored to death? Does it affect you at all inside, in your heart, in your mind? Does it, does it matter at all? Or do you just think, well, we're just singing this song, and then as soon as it's done, then we can move on? See, when we're bored with talking about Jesus, when we're bored and yawning because we're singing a song about God's grace and not about how He can help me get better and feel better and do better, when, when it doesn't matter to us anymore, we're taking Jesus' sacrifice lightly. And the reason that we would do that is because we're taking our sin lightly. The God of the universe came down as a man to live perfectly for over 30 years so that he could be accused wrongly. He could be whipped. He could be beaten. He could be spit on. He could take all of your sins that would crush him on himself, go to the cross, and die because of your lie because you coveted, because you looked sideways at somebody. I mean, because of all and every one of my sins. And so when I see sin that much and that bad, then I see God's grace so great and wonderful. I see Jesus as the one who has died for me. And I can't be bored about that. It's got to affect me in some way. And I'm not saying that every time you hear God's grace, we need to break down in tears and just bawl our eyes out. But maybe sometimes we should. If you take Jesus' sacrifice lightly, you take God's grace as just something that's, well, it's just a word we throw around. Oh, give me grace. You know, I messed up. Oh, just give me some grace. Grace is not cheap. Grace is not easy. Grace is powerful. It's strong. 
we can see the, the heart of Esau growing within us when we take these things lightly. So we've got to reject works as salvation, as, as removing sin. But it starts with the acknowledgement of the greatness of God and then the terribleness of our sin before Him. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. It's a big deal to God. It needs to be a big deal to us. This is part of encountering God. Your works don't bring about the encounter with God. It's all His grace. It's all His mercy coming to us so that we will confess those sins and turn away from them to Him rather than hold on to them. So Esau's bad example. Third part, verses 10 through 15. Number three, we're going to see that Jacob beholds God. This is where, this is where God comes to Jacob. The, the merciful, God, God the merciful, God the gracious. He comes to meet the sinner Jacob right where he is. Obviously not because of his works. Not because he deserves it in any way. We've, we've seen nothing good really from Jacob. At no time has Jacob searched. At no time has Jacob become a seeker. <laughs> God is here. He's, he's, he's coming to Jacob. God doesn't wait for any of that. He comes to him. So Jacob travels. Verse 11 says he came to a certain place. And he got to that place. This is what happens. You're on foot. <laughs> you, don't, you don't travel hundreds of miles in a day. You're only traveling uh, maybe 15 up to 20 miles, possibly more, but not much more in, in a day. But the sun had set. So he says, well, I guess I better stay here. <laughs> Can't travel in the night. There's no headlights, no flashlights. So he says, all right, everybody, let's set up camp. There's nobody with him. He's completely alone in the middle of nowhere. He doesn't even have a pillow. So he takes a rock to prop up his head so he doesn't wake up with that crick in his neck where you're like, oh, man, <laughs> that was bad, right? He lays down. He goes to sleep. He drifts off into a dream. And then verse 12 says, what? Look! That's what the word behold means. Look! It, it's completely dark. It's isolated out here. It's, we're in the middle of nowhere. But suddenly the expressive Hebrew just gives these bright and, and, and expressive words. And, and all of the verbs even change to present tense. Look! There's a ladder! What is And look, there's angels going up and down on it. And look, there's God. There's Yahweh above it. The whole isolated area is now this bustling metropolis of activity <laughs> between heaven and earth, angels going up and down on this ladder or stairs or escalator or ramp or whatever the word actually means here. And the Lord himself is at the top, and some translations say next to Jacob. But the point here is that Yahweh, the El Shaddai, the, the God Almighty is, is here encountering, revealing himself to Jacob in a visible form where Jacob can see him. And it's a sight that we can't even imagine. I tried. I, I, I thought, what would that look like? What, would, what was Jacob seeing? But, but here's the important part. It's not the vision that gets the attention in this account for us. It gets Jacob's attention. <laughs> it was meant to do that. But we don't get any better description of that because what happens here is that God begins to speak, and that's what takes the focus of the passage. That's what we get written down in inspired scripture. Here's what's important. God's words. What God says. Verse 13, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. 
the eternal self-existent one. The God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, he hasn't changed again. He's the same God, the same God from Genesis 1-1, the same God who's been with Abraham his whole life and Isaac his whole life. He has the same promises to Abraham that he gave to Isaac and that he's now giving to Jacob. Offspring so numerous you can't count them like dust of the earth. You'll spread out all over the land. All of the earth, uh, the families of the earth will be blessed in you and your offspring. And Jacob's just got to be sitting there, wow, overcome, overwhelmed. How could any of this be possible? He's not even going to live long enough to see that. Would every family on the earth be blessed through his offspring? That's the Messiah. 2,000 years later, that's going to happen. He's not even going to live long enough to see it. But all of these promises that he's heard from his grandfather and from his father, God is giving them to him. Now he's, and how do I make sense of this? But God's not finished speaking to him. So he says, look, pay attention. There's <laughs> that word behold again. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until, what I have, until I've done what I've promised you. Now that doesn't mean as soon as God's done, he's just going to toss Jacob off to the side and say, all right, we're done. Now go away. He, he, He's going to be with Jacob from now on. He's going to fulfill all of his promises. And again, the promise of the Messiah is going to take 2,000 years, so God's not going to be done with Jacob. He's not going to toss him off. He will fulfill his promises, verse 15 says. That's his word. His word. His pro- he gave his word in a covenant, in an oath, in, in just in speaking, in promises, the possession of the promised land, numerous descendants, protection so that he'll return. That's what God came to Jacob to do, to reveal his word to give him his promises. And it's not an accident that Jacob was asleep at this time. Do you remember when we looked at how God gave Abraham the covenant? Abraham's just fall down there uh, asleep on, on, the, on the side there. And, and God goes through the elements because it, you have no work that can, that can measure up to this. These are God's words, God's promises made to you, even though you don't deserve it, you haven't earned it, you never could earn it. Your part is to hear and to believe. That's why Jacob's asleep here at this point. You see, when we want this to be prescriptive, we will look at this, we say, well, how do I encounter God? Well, I must have some kind of vision. When we make this prescriptive, that's what we look for. We look for dreams, we look for visions, we look for special appearances by God, directly from God to us like this that he did for Jacob. But the eternal principle here is not the vision. It's not the dream while we sleep. It's the words of God. That's what gets the attention in the passage. That's what we're supposed to hear, the the promises of God that he gives to us when we're at our most helpless. When we can't do anything, God says, I will. I have been, I am, and I will. The blessings we have from God the blessings begin in his word. That's why Hebrews 1, 1 says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us and to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, instead, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. His son has spoken to us now. The heir of all things, that's who, we, that's who this son is, Jesus, who speaks to us, so that now he gives us his word, Hebrews 4.12 says, the one that's living and active, that's sharper than any two-edged sword. Verse 13 says that no creature is hidden from his sight. We're all naked and exposed to him to whom we must give an account. That's what his word tells us. In his word, brothers and sisters, that's where we encounter God. It's in his word that we encounter Jesus. 
And that was the lesson that Jesus had for his disciples in John chapter 1. You have these in your notes, verses 43 to 51. Jesus says to, to, to his disciples, he says, well, to Nathaniel first, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel's like, what? You saw me? You must be the son of God, the king of the Jews. And Jesus is like, because I saw you under the fig tree. <laughs> you will see greater things than these, Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you all, he's, ta- he's talking to all of them now. Truly, truly, I say to you all, you all will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending, not on the ladder like Jacob saw, but on the Son of Man, on Jesus. Jesus is the bridge between us and heaven. He's the ladder, the ramp, the escalator, the, the, whatever word we need to put in there. He is the one who goes between us and heaven and heaven and us. He reveals God to us. He's revealed in his word. He's the mediator, the, the high priest who stands before God, who brings us before God. The whole reason that we can pray is because of Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus. He's the one who gave himself as a ransom for all, which was the testimony given at the proper time. This word of God that we have is how we encounter God. Peter says in 2 Peter 1 that this word is more fully confirmed than any vision, than anything that we can see or witness or, or, or be a part of. You remember Peter, James, and John were on the mountain, the mountain transfiguration, and Jesus, his, his glory just shone out before them, and they couldn't see anything else but that, and they fall down on their faces. Peter says, look, this is more fully confirmed than that. That was a real vision. That was a true fact that happened. True fact, right? That's a term from today. Um, that actually happened, but Peter said, no, this is more fully confirmed even than that vision. He goes on to say that this scripture doesn't originate from man. It's not by the will of man. It's not by man's words. It came by God himself through the Holy Spirit to us. So the lesson that we get in this part is that we need to accept the word of God as his word. Really accept his word as his word. Because think about this. If God revealed himself to you like he did to Jacob here, wouldn't you remember it forever? Wouldn't you think about it and talk about it? I mean, never stop talking about it. You'd be the person, oh, here he comes. (laughs) The one that got that vision from, here he comes, right? Because you wouldn't ever stop talking about it. But eventually, what would happen over time is it wouldn't be enough, right? You'd want another one. You'd want to have another experience like that. That's just the way human experience is. And that's just the way our nature goes. I had this experience and it was great, but yeah, I'd really like to have another one. I'd really like to have more. But in his word, brothers and sisters, we get to be here with Jacob in this vision. More fully confirmed the word itself that describes the vision, the dream that Jacob had. The essential part of this encounter was, was his word being given to Jacob. That's why his words are given to us. The ladder with the angels and, and the, the vision part that he saw, that's just mentioned at God's attention. So we'd hear. Now, why was there a ladder? Well, it's probably an intentional picture of the separation between heaven and earth, the constant obedience of the angels doing God's business. But again, Jesus is now that bridge, that ladder. But we, we get to be here for this. We get to be there when Moses talks to God. We, we get to be a part of it when, when God speaks to Elijah and to Peter and to Paul. And John, 
and all the others. This word of God gets us entrance into all of the visions that God gave, the dreams, the, the things that he gave to people that were real and true, but this is more fully confirmed. It, it's more reliable than anything we could dream. This is how we encounter God. So are you taking the word of God into your mind, into your heart? Are you accepting it as his word? Because he has given us a miraculous word. <laughs> he speaks to us through it today. It's, it's not just some words on a page, but, but these words on a page that the spirit works in our heart and mind to make alive and to, to, because they're real and they're true. It's his word. Are we reading it or hearing it? Are we meditating, chewing on it, applying it? sharing it with people. Accept this word as his word, the, the way that we really and truly encounter our God, Jesus. And so if we want to encounter God, we need to listen to the witness of believers around us and those of a past. We need to reject works as a way to remove sin, and we need to accept his word as his word. Now, we don't have the same promises that Jacob had, Right? Jacob was given these promises, I'll go with you where you go in the land, and I'll bring you back, and I'm going to sustain you all this whole time. We don't have the same promises, but we have better promises, <laughs> eternal promises. So let's look at number four, the fourth part here, verses 16 to 22, to, to, to close this up, Jacob believes God. Jacob believes God here. Here's where he responds to this encounter with God. He wakes up, verse 16, he says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. Now, why would Jacob not have known that the Lord would be there? Because he didn't know the Lord. He didn't know that this Lord was in that place and in this place and over there and over here and over there. The Lord is everywhere. He didn't know this God. He, he thought he was alone. Remember, in fact, he probably tried to be alone. You don't want somebody encountering you in the middle of nowhere where nobody can help you. He probably thought and wanted to be alone, but God is there. No other God in, in this time claimed to be everywhere. Gods were little, gods of little territories. They had the little areas. And Jacob thought, I've left that territory of, of Yahweh. <laughs> now I'm in somebody else's. No, God's here. He's where we are. He's, he's everywhere where we could be and everywhere we can't be. God transcends all territories. And what he feels, verse 17, is fear. He's afraid. Why? Well, probably because he's just grasped who this God is. This almighty God who's everywhere, the God of his father Isaac, the God who had his will done even when he tried to overcome it, the God who wasn't left behind, the God that he had lied about, the El Shaddai Yahweh God has just shown him who he is, and he's scared. He's rightly afraid, like Adam was in Genesis 3.10. You know, God, you came and I was afraid. I hid myself because I'm sinful and you're holy. Jacob says, this is God's house, the gate of heaven. This is where I met God. This is where I, this is where I encountered him. It's a special place because nobody, nowhere else had Jacob ever encountered God where he was before. And then God had just promised that he would be with Jacob wherever you go and, and I'll not leave you until the whole word, the whole promise comes to pass. This was an important place to Jacob. It's in the middle of nowhere and it's been transformed into the house of God. Before it was loose, which means separation, it means alone, you're out in the middle of nowhere, but now it's Bethel, house of God. But not only has the place been transformed, Jacob is here transformed from wanderer to worshiper. 
And it's a total, complete transformation. That's the mark, by the way, of a true encounter with God. Not where I'm one way and I get to see God, experience, and feel, and then I just go back to the way I was. There's a change that happens within us that's immediate and and eternal, but then also that becomes slow progress day after day. But you notice that Jacob memorializes the place, sets up a stone that he had his head on, he anoints it with oil, it sets it apart as special. God revealed himself to me here. It marked the spot for himself and for others. God is real and living. He showed himself to me here. He renames the whole place. And he's setting up a reminder because it's so easy for us to forget. It's so easy to us for, to forget what God has done and who he is. So, so he sets up this memorial. And then he makes a vow. And it's a conditional vow. It says, if God will be with me and keep me in this way, If God will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come to my Father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And then this stone that's now a pillar will be God's house, and then I will give you a tenth. If all of this happens, then God will be my God. This will be shown or proven to be where he really appeared to me. And then I'll give him a a tenth, 10% of what he gives to me. Because life is permanently changed. In fact, from this point on, Jacob the cheater doesn't cheat anymore. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't deceive anymore. He doesn't manipulate anymore. He, he just acts uprightly from this point on. It's a total change. Now, you may feel a little bit uncomfortable about this. If God does this, then I'll do that. <laughs> Who does Jacob think he is? Is this prescriptive? Is this the way that we should be about our belief? For the first time, really, Jacob's thinking more about God than himself. He says, if God's really real, if God's true to his word, then I can do all of these things. God's just said he would bless Jacob, that he would be with Jacob, he'd keep Jacob, he'd bring him back. So how else is God going to do that unless he feeds him, clothes him, goes with him, comes back, right? What Jacob's actually doing is he's, he's claiming God's promises to him. And he's saying, if, if God's going to be true, if he's going to be real and true to his word, then he's going to be my God. He's going to be the one that I worship. It's really the same thing that we say. Not with those promises. We don't have those promises that I'm going to be fully clothed and, and fully fed all the time. But the promises that I have are if God will forgive my sin, if he'll wipe out my transgressions, my iniquities, then he's going to be my God. And I can worship him, and I will worship him for what he's done. If God will fulfill the promises he's made, then he will be my God. I will believe and I will worship him. The promises he's made are, as Peter explained in Acts 3, repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. The promise we have in Acts 4.12 is there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's not in me, it's not in you, it's not in somebody else, it's only in Jesus, but that means there is salvation in Jesus. That's the promise that we have. If, If God will blot out my sins and forgive me, he will be my God, I will worship him, I'll live for him. If he doesn't blot out my sins, then it's all for nothing. It's all worthless. And I can't live for him. So Jacob makes this vow. If God is going to be true to his promises, then I can believe in him and follow and worship him as God. So our lesson here is to respond to God with a life of worship. Respond to God with a life of worship. When we encounter God, it's not just an emotional experience. It's not just an intellectual experience. 
It's not trying harder. It's not doing nothing. It's not sitting here in church or it's not singing some songs. You've not rightly responded to the encounter with God from His Word until we are living a life of worship. Not perfection. We're not going to reach that state. But a life of worship dedicated to this Lord Jesus Christ because for Jacob, it meant his life was changed from this point forward. It meant that he would make vows to God. I will worship you and give to you and be devoted to you. And for us, it means the same. It does mean being committed to him even on Sundays. (laughs) Being with his people, being with him, holding fast to his word, listening, believing, obeying more. Listen, if God can be this gracious to Jacob, he he can bring an encounter with Jacob. He can do the same with us. Because of his grace, because of his mercy. Father, what a blessing it is that God, you can overcome what we can never overcome. God, you can forgive us. You do forgive us. You blot out our sins, God, when we turn away from them, when we have faith in Christ. Oh, God, what a blessing. Lord, I pray that we would never take that for granted, that that would never be boring to us. Father, that we'd never downplay or minimize sin. We'd confess it. We'd we'd mourn over it because then we can shout in rejoicing because of your forgiveness. God, the, the joy comes from you because of who you are, because of what you do in us, Father. You're so holy and we are so sinful, but Jesus brings us to you. Oh, God, thank you. Father, make us more faithful to share that message, to live that message with others because you're worthy. You deserve it. We praise you. We worship you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.